Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast, and today's guest, somebody I'm definitely super excited about speaking with. When I first had the idea for this podcast a whole number of months ago, she was one of the very first people I reached out to as somebody who I thought would be interested to talk to, professor, director of the Franco-American Studies, excuse me, at the University of Maine, Susan Pinette is joining us today. Thank you very much, Susan, for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this is very cool. So what is your personal story? Where are you from? How'd you get involved in all of this? Um, so my parents are from northern Maine. My father's last name is Pinette. My mother's last name is Bouchard, so I'm French on both sides. And I grew up in southern Maine, and I grew up not really, I mean, kind of knowing that I was from a French family, not really knowing what that meant. So I went to undergraduate at the University of Maine and then went out to California to do my graduate work in French literature. And um, when I was out there, I was called by the University of Maine. They were had an opening to for someone to direct Franco-American studies. And so I applied and got the job, thankfully. So I guess, you know, for me, the biggest kind of thing that I needed to get my mind around was the very term Franco-American, because it was not something that I ever used growing up. We never said Franco-American. I always thought it was something that was in a can. <laughs> you know, we always said French, even though Growing up, uh, my parents both spoke French, but it was not my first language. They would speak to to me in French, and I would respond in English. And I studied French in school because it was, I think, because it was easy for me, you know, because I had heard it all my life. But, it, you know, when I speak French now, I speak with a an accent of someone who's an Anglophone who has learned French in school. Interesting. And, yeah. So it was this strange thing because I would always say, I'm French, but... I was American and I didn't speak French. And uh, so just that term was an interesting term. And then to be hired as director of Franco-American studies was not something I knew what that meant. And it made me realize that you can be Franco-American or French and not really know what that means. And so kind of that's been my journey as I've been here. I was hired in the year 2000. And so I've been here for 20 years. And what I've been doing is trying to learn myself kind of what that means to be Franco-American and help other people, you know, my students learn that too. Do you take the time, I'm curious, do you define that for your students? Do you guys attempt to define that, what it means? Because that's a big part of what this podcast is trying to talk about. <laughs> it might be the underlying issue of this entire podcast is what, what exactly are we? What is a Franco-American? Yeah, it's a tough, tough question. I think because for so many years, Franco-Americans define themselves like the Quebecois still do as French speakers. And sure. I think it goes way back to issues of la survivance and the defining of French Canada as Catholic and French speaking. So what's happening in our generation, in my generation, in your generation, in my students, is that we're not French speaking Right. right, for the most part. Come from Francophone contexts, maybe, but I think for the most part, we're American. I don't try to define this for my students. I think what I try to do is help them think about it. 
because I think for many of them, you know, they come from cultural contexts that they recognize, but they think that it's just their individual, unique self. Sure. And what I try to do in my classes is say, you know, your story of your grandparents coming down here from Quebec or your family working in the mills or the shoe shops, or that's a cultural story. That's not sure. just an individual family story. And, and we talk about the issue of French. I don't try to say that you have to be French speaking or you don't have to be French speaking. I think that's something that everyone has to figure out for themselves. So I think I try to make my students aware of the issue and I try to help them question the issue, but I don't try to, I don't define it for them because I don't, I don't want to be a identity police officer, you sure. know, <laughs> and I think so much of, so much of what I see people police themselves, right? I see my students and they'll say, oh, you know, my grandparents are French, but I'm not French, you know? Right. No, and absolutely. So they police themselves out of their identity because, and, and that's not, so I have no interest in doing that. That's not what I'm here for. Sure. And one thing that you brought up, you, you mentioned briefly, was the Catholic identity. Because yeah. for me, from my experience, when I remember growing up, there's a couple things that define what it meant to be French Canadian or a French Canadian descendant, whatever the heck we are. And that was, you know, you spoke French, you went to the French school, but that you also went to the Catholic church, the French Catholic church. Like that was a major, major deal. And what, is that an issue that comes up a lot in, in maybe your personal history and in, in the history that you talk about with your students? Well, I think that's, yeah, I think Maine is a little unique because I think, yes, I think the parishes are absolutely important in the history of Franco-Americans. I mean, there's no denying that. I think Maine's a little different because we have Northern Maine, right? So Northern Maine, those Acadian communities, yes, sure. they were Catholic, but they were not Catholic immigrant communities. They were communities who came and settled and then the border was drawn through, you know, when Maine became a state, that border was put right through those com communities and kind of decided that half was American and the other half was Canadian. And so their history is not really a history of migration. And so the Catholic Church doesn't play the same institutional role that it does. That's I fascinating, think, actually. Southern, Southern New England. So we have a lot, a lot of the students I work with come from Northern Maine or have family from Northern Maine. So, yes, I think the parishes and the Catholic Church are absolutely very much important. But I think in Maine, it's a little different because of that, those Acadian communities. Yeah. So then, so now back to back to the question about the role of parishes and identity. I think the closing of those parochial schools, those French parochial schools, really made it had a huge impact on the Franco sure. communities. And so the students that I work with, so I work with mainly 18, 19, 20 year olds, they don't come from communities like that, right? They perhaps are Catholic. Some of them not, right? <laughs> Some of them right. they're no, absolutely their grandparents are Catholic, but they are not practicing. They might be culturally Catholic, but they're not practicing. And some of them are, but it's not, you know, I think as Catholicism has become less important to American identity, it has become less important to Franco-American identity, which is not to say it's not important historically. Um, but I think with the closing of those parochial schools, you know, the the parishes were the social institution that structured Franco life for so long. 
And I think that's maybe the crisis, if there is one, that exists in Franco-American communities is that, you know, those social institutions, they're not there to support the Franco community anymore. You know, so many of my students haven't gone to French parochial school. They're not practicing Catholics, you know. So I think that's where my institution, the University of Maine, comes in and the Franco-American Center because we're the only other social institution that they know of, right, that, that, that's kind of publicly affirming their ethnic identity. Interesting. And now, now I'm curious. I mean, we're, you're talking, you're dealing with 19, 20-year-old students. How big of a role does ethnic identity, I mean, is that even on their radar with it, by the time they arrive in, at the University of Maine? Because I don't, I mean, if I was 19 years old, I'm not sure that's something that I would have spent a whole lot of time delving into, you know, what my individual ethnic identity was, you know, it was something that was there, something I grew up with, but it's not something I went out of my way to study. I find it kind of interesting. So the classes I teach, I teach their general education classes. So the classes I teach are open to Francos and non-Francos alike. They're taught in English. I try to embed Franco experience within larger questions. So right now I'm teaching a course, it's a new course on Jack Kerouac. And so many of the students who take my classes are not Franco. Actually, what's really interesting is at the beginning of the semester, I'll have about 20 or 25 students in my classes, and about maybe a quarter of them will actively identify as Franco-American. By the end, about 75% will. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah, because I think you know, so they take these courses because it fulfills, it sounds somewhat interesting. Oh, Kerouac, that's an interesting name, you know, I've heard of him. So they'll take this class, not because they're pursuing their identity as such, but they're interested in the topic. And then we talk about Jack Kerouac's Franco-American identity, that he spoke French until, he spoke only French until he was six, that he wrote on the road first in French, right? We talk about all these things. And they begin to see that ethnic identity is reflects something in their life. And they begin to explore that and become more curious about that and, and learn about that. So the students I work with, they're not pursuing their ethnic identity as such, but when they discover it, they claim it. This is an awesome experience. It helps them understand their life, right? Things that they thought were only their unique individual family quirkiness turns out to be an actually social, it's a social phenomenon, right? It has a life of its own outside of themselves. You talked about obviously Kerouac, and that kind of makes me segue to Franco-American literature, because this is something I've thought about for a while, what it means to be Franco-American. I'm curious as to what what is Franco-American literature? If I write something, my my, um, couple generations removed. It was my grandfather that was from Quebec. I do not speak French. If I write something, it would have to be in English. Would that, could that count? What, what exactly is something that we could label as, you know, being a part of Franco-American literature? Yeah, and this is a question that all ethnic writers face, right? You know, what is Franco-American literature? What is African-American literature, right? It's not a question that's unique to us. Sure. For me, so I, that's what I study is Franco-American literature. And I'm, interested in writers who who write about franco experience right i mean because that gives me something to work with right 
you know, if they're, if a Franco author is not really engaging with Franco themes, then there's, so as my work as a literary scholar, that's the definition I use. We've just started a literary journal and I, you know, it was something that people, you know, we struggled with this question, you know, what are we going to accept? What is Franco-American literature? And the editorial board struggled with this question, came up with, I don't remember exactly how they defined it, the exact wording, but it was, you know, of Franco-American descent and or discussing Franco-American themes. But I don't think it's a, it's a, again, I don't, I don't think it's a hard and fast definition. I think it's something that each, you know, for me as a scholar, I kind of, my parameters, right? Because it is tricky, like you say, <laughs> you know? So it's, so it's interesting. Your take is like, a, a, it's almost subject matter specific to what would make something Franco-American. Yeah, and, and I also look at the author, right? I mean, because, you know, there are lots of authors who write about Franco's, you know, somewhat interested in that, but I'm interested in more writers who identify as Franco-American and then write about that. Now, going back to your role dealing with students, because one of the things I think that we try to talk about here on this podcast, one of the things I think I want to explore and I find interesting is the fact that what the cultural identity is, at least in Manchester today, is very different even than when I was a kid growing up. Uh, 30 plus years ago at this point. Uh, the church that I was baptized at was a French church that doesn't exist anymore. It's now storage for a theater company. Just seeing how much has changed in these past 30 years, just in my experience, I'm curious. Now you're working with almost like a next generation of student now. So what do you see? Maybe what's your vision as to where this, what it will need to be a Franco-American even 20, 30 years down the road now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I start my classes and within two weeks, I can tell you which ones of which one of my students are Franco-American. And I've gotten so good that I can pretty much tell you what town they're from. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you're right. Like the, the Franco communities are changing, but I still think that the cultural identity, there's something about Franco-Americans, the way they carry themselves, the way they interact, the way they talk, even in English that's still very much prevalent in young people. You know, many of them, okay, so they're 18, 19, they have French grandparents, they, they have right. French uncles and they, okay, maybe they're not Catholic, but they've gone Sunday, you know, to every Sunday to their meme's house, you know, for- Yeah, exactly. You know, so there are these traditions that are still very much alive kind of cultural ways of being that are still very much evident in young people. They don't identify as Franco, right, perhaps, because they've never been taught what that means. I mean, and I think that's, you know, what I try to do is help them see because, you know, Franco-Americans, unlike other ethnic groups, are pretty invisible. We're white. Okay, so, okay, we're a white ethnicity. But unlike the Irish or the Italian-Americans, I mean, we're... There's no kind of place where we can go and see Franco-Americans, maybe the Cajuns, but that's different, right? Sure. That's not the same. So I think that there's a real, like I think Franco-American culture still exists, but it's not being taught anywhere and it's not visible. Students can't see it in commercial culture. So they don't have a way of labeling it. They don't have a way of identifying it as such. And I think that's more what's changed, right? I think. You know, like when you were talking about the churches or 
everyone speaking French, right? That was visible in a way of identifying and seeing, you know, it was very salient and we could see Franco communities and Franco culture. We can't see it anymore, but as such, but we can, it's still there, right? It just doesn't go away. No, that's absolutely true. And I'm curious as to your take on one of the things that we talked about early on this podcast is the difficulty sometimes with even naming what culture we belong to. Because yeah. some, even some of us, we're using the term Franco-American in this podcast, this discussion right now. But some people aren't even comfortable with that. They prefer, you know, like French-Canadian or we, we don't even agree on what we call ourselves, which I think has to factor into how, how this identity issue that we have. Yeah, there's that. I mean, I think that, you know, I think Franco-American was invented to try to address that issue, right? Because I don't think that this is something that's new to us. I mean, because there's always been Acadian, you know, even in the kind of Franco, even in the kind of traditional Franco enclaves, about 10% are Acadians, right? right. So you yep. still have, you know, kind of what are we going to call ourselves? Are we French Canadian? Are we, we're not Quebecois, or maybe we are, right? <laughs> so all this. And I think Franco-American tries to address that, but not everyone accepts it, right? And, you know, we never said that growing up. We always said we're French, right? So, <laughs> yeah, so I think that that's part of it. I think also, you know, if we think about, you know, if you think about the way America talks about white ethnicity and it talks about the kind of migration of peoples into the U.S., it's all done through the story of Ellis Island. But that's right. not our story, right? That's not our, we're not coming through Ellis Island. Y yes, our name, but it's also, we're, we don't fit anywhere in the, in the narrative of American history, right? And I think that's part of the problem too. Now, is there any efforts to make us part of that narrative? Especially a place like Maine, which is super high Franco-American population. You would think that somebody would at least start the ball rolling of putting together a lesson plan. And say, hey, when you say when you're teaching about immigration, maybe throw us in here. Yeah, we have. You know, we've worked with the Department of Education. We have a page on their website for resources for teaching Franco literature, Franco history. Right? I mean, we have tried that. I think force is strong because when people teach, you know, American history, when they teach. 19th century immigrations what do they teach they teach ellis island in all the history right. books if you look at the history books they don't talk about borderlands migration from canada no you know? absolutely and and it's just so regional because it happened you know between you know quebec or new brunswick and new england it's a regional migration it's a it's it's a huge migration but it's and it doesn't fit inside that that mold of 19th century immigration is through Ellison Island from the old world, the old country. <laughs> you know, I think what our experience has been is, yes, we put together lesson plans. Yes, we provide all sorts of resources for teachers, but it's hard for teachers because their textbooks only talk about migration in the 19th century from Europe sure. to Ellis Island, right? Yeah, and that's course. really hard. You're, we are outside that mold. And so it just, we fall through the cracks, right? Which is why I think the work that you guys are doing at the University of Maine is obviously super, super important 
to make sure that we don't all fall through those cracks, that this story is told, that we're part of the bigger picture. Like you mentioned, it's not like we're not necessarily stupid, unique. We're not crazy, unique. We are part of a bigger thing, but we deserve our space at that table. Right. And a lot of times we're not talked about. Yeah, that's right. Now, speaking of the University of Maine, I do want the opportunity to plug your program a little bit. So what is it that you guys offer? What do you guys have at the center? I know you guys have a publication you guys put out. Hype this program a little bit, because what you guys are doing is awesome. So the Franco-American Center at the University of Maine was the result of student activism in the 70s, right? So students basically from the state of Maine came to the University of Maine and said, hey, wait a minute, this is a land-grant university, and there's nothing about us. Yeah, right. <laughs> Um, so they started advocating for resources to study, you know, to study Franco-Americans and to provide a place, a culturally sensitive place where Franco-Americans could feel comfortable and learn about themselves. Because the University of Maine, as a land grant institution, should be teaching about all the people of Maine. Sure. Right? At the time, uh, there were no faculty who knew anything about Franco-Americans. Many of them were from away, and so they didn't really understand Franco-American communities. The French department was called the Department of Foreign Languages, even though, <laughs> you know, French in Maine is not foreign, right? And so this, these students started advocating, started applying for money so that they could do some curriculum transformation. They got some grants to do some work in... Um, in the mental hospital nearby because there were in you know there were patients who were there who were hospitalized yet there were no french language services for these patients and so they were not able to get better or get out sure sure, sure. so through the 70s and 80s these students kept pushing and eventually the university responded you know they responded to that pressure and established the Franco-American Center, which was, you know, a student-run base. Um, and the students started a publication called the, the Forum. They actually called it the Farag Forum. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the phone number at the center was still is five eight one Frog. That's <laughs> tremendous. And they actually got into a lot of trouble by, from the Franco community for I can this. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because these students were very much, they were very much inspired by the Quebec Revolution, or sure. the, you know, the Quebec, the Quiet Revolution. Quiet Revolution, yep. And they were inspired by the student movements here in the United States. So they were radical, and I think that they were even, you know, kind of pushing buttons in the Franco community, right? They were kind of looking to overturn everything they kept you know they eventually had this this center and the university kept putting funds you know they kept putting pressure and the university would have more funds and then they hired me in the year 2000 and that was kind of you know all along what they had wanted was an academic program because they you know from the very beginning it was this is a land-grant university. We should be teaching about the people of Maine, all the people right. of Maine. And so that's what I was initially hired to do. I was hired as the director of Franco-American Studies. And so initially I was separate from the Franco-American Center. So the center still exists and did exist as a kind of student-based center. So it's to support students. It's to support 
the local community of Franco-Americans. The forum still exists. It's a quarterly publication, comes out four times a year in English and in French and in all languages in between. <laughs> and so we've been adding... So I was hired in 2000 to develop a program. So we offer a Franco-American studies minor. Um, and that was something that I developed here. And as I was talking about in the beginning, it was something that I really needed to learn about myself because sure. I was trained as a literary scholar and I grew up Franco-American, but that doesn't mean that I knew anything or that I could teach about the right. history of Franco-Americans. And so I've developed different courses and tried to develop ways to work with what students have to do here for their major because students are not going to come here to major in Franco-American studies and I wouldn't want them to because of what would you do with such a degree right. but can help them learn about themselves and if they're not Franco-American learn about the Franco community and we have lots of students who are studying to be nurses or social workers and or teachers and I think that learning about this community helps them as well. So that, so yeah, so we have a minor, we have the Franco, -Ameri the forum, we have the center. So I, a group of people have just started a literary and online literary journal called Resonance. And that's the lead editor of that is Stephen Riel, who's a poet from Massachusetts. There's a group of people working on that. And I think what else we do. So uh, basically what we try to do is leverage the resources that we have at the University of Maine to support Franco-American initiatives. Which is awesome. Now, you mentioned a couple of courses. Can you give us a preview? What kind of classes? Because, again, this is new to me. When I was coming through high school, I never envisioned studying Franco-American studies, even as a minor, to be an option. It just <laughs> wasn't on my radar. So what do those classes look like? So I've got different ones. I've got, so I've got a class called Immigration Past and Present. We look at, we compare Franco immigration to immigration today. Students who are interested in immigration today can learn about 19th century immigration, learn about the issues. Are they the same? Are they different? Yeah. How are they different? I've got another course that I'm doing right now on, on the kind of Frenchness of Jack Kerouac, right? So Jack Kerouac, we like reading him. What about his French heritage? Is it important to his writing? And if so, how? I've got another course. It's on the cultural geography of Franco-Americans. So Franco-Americans have a different cultural geography, like the sense of place is different. And what does that look like, right? And what is cultural geography? How, how is it different for Franco-Americans? And how might we think about that? I'm trying to think what else. And then I have another course called Introduction to Franco-American Studies, where we just learn about the Franco community, how they got here, and the various issues that still kind of face the Franco community. So the issue of language, the issue of, you know, kind of what are the cultural touchstones of Franco America, right? If we, if we no longer speak language, what, what, how can we define ourselves, right? And, and those sorts of things. So those are the kinds of courses that I develop here. That's awesome. No, at some point, we're going to have to have a chat about cultural geography, because I got to tell you, that's something I know very, very, very little, almost nothing about. I think that's really interesting. And why French? Why are we different? I don't I honestly don't know the answer to that question. So that's cool. But I do want to give you an opportunity uh, before we go to plug another event that's oh. going to happen in Orno at the right. end of April. That sounds absolutely awesome. Thank you. I'm going to go this time. 
Mike's going to go this time. We're going to have a party at the end of April up in Orono. Please tell us about this. Okay, so yes, every year we host, and this is their seventh year, I think, of doing this, hosting a rassemblement or a writer-artist gathering. And so from April, I don't even know the dates off the top of my head. I think April 26th, is yeah, that right? Yeah, 26th, 27th, 28th. Right. Spoilers, I only know because the 28th is my birthday, so I words backwards. <laughs> that's, that's a giveaway. So we start on Friday, Friday at 5 with a potluck, and we invite anyone who wants to join us to come and share your work in a culturally supportive environment. Because so many artists feel like they, before they can share their art, they have to spend all this time establishing context. But with us, you don't need to do that. You just come. <laughs> we usually have about 30 people. It happens in English. It happens in French, whatever language you feel comfortable in. Um, we have historians and writers and artists. And we come together and we spend, we, everyone gets an equal amount of time to present what they're working on. We start Friday night with a potluck, and then we go through Saturday, and then we break on Sunday. The university, we provide food, and if you can't afford lodging, we help you with that. But no cost. It's just, a, just to come together and share our art. Which is tremendous. And what is the theme, if you don't mind, of this year's yeah. weekend because i've i've been talking i read it i was the new it was a new theme to me i brought it to work talked to everybody at southern new hampshire university all about this trying to get as many perspectives because i think it's super interesting it's interesting isn't it so the theme is called the ship of culture and this was something that you know if you have a ship and you replace every part of it when you come back after your journey is it still the same ship and so we want to use this as a metaphor or, or use this as a way of thinking about Franco-American culture. And it kind of gets to some of the things we've been talking about, right? You know, if you no longer speak, if we're doing Franco-culture in English, is it the same ship? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and there's, of course, there's no answer, but I think it's going to be an interesting way of thinking about Franco-Americans. Yeah, I've been, I watched the TED Talk. It's awesome. So anyway, <laughs> so if you're, if somebody is interested in attending, where should, where should we direct them? So you can contact me. My email is spinet at maine.edu, S-P-I-N-E-T-T-E at maine.edu. You can also Google us or find us online. So just email me and we can sign you up. Gotcha. I guess we can put that out. I'm looking at my mic here. We can put that out through our social media platforms as well. So that's awesome. Great. Thank well, you. Again, we've been talking to Susan Bennett, professor and director of the Franco-American Center of University of Maine. Thank you very, very much for uh, speaking with us today. Thank you for all the good work you're doing. Thank you. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell.
If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Concord TV Podcasting Studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Concord TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.